Welcome to the Internets of Everything podcast, the audio companion to the Internets of Everything live sessions, a series of conversations exploring the socio-ecological dimensions of the digital economy. The Internets of Everything is part of our knowledge exchange program that is made possible through the support of the members, patrons and program partners of the Billion Seconds Institute, IAM's lifelong learning initiative. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join the collective learning network that enables it to happen, visit billion.iam-internet.com and become a member, which includes, amongst many things, tickets to future Internets for Everything live sessions and full video recordings of past ones, including Q&A segments and discussion forums. In this episode, we hear part of the conversation from the Internets for Everything live session one, curated in partnership with Somerset House Studios in which DeForest Brown Jr. and Danielle Brathwaite-Shirley, moderated by Charlene Prempe, discuss the meaning of black joy in the challenging socio-technological context of the 2020s. This first session is uh, presented in partnership with uh, Somerset House Studios. And to learn more, uh, a bit more about them and, and introduce briefly the context of the topics for today's conversation and our special guest, I'm pleased to uh, introduce uh, Leonara. Hey, Andres. Um, nice to meet you, everyone, virtually um, in this weird time. Um, so yeah, my name is Leonara, and I'm the program producer for Somerset House Studios, um, an experimental workspace in the heart of London. Um, when the invitation came from Andres and his team to contribute to the series, we were working on a program exploring race and technology, uh, which will be launching in 2022. Um, our starting point for this is Black Joy at the intersections of art, technology, Black culture and activism. And we're interested in the ways in which racially marginalized artists and thinkers are subverting technologies and creating digital gardens, utopias and safe spaces for themselves and their communities. Without giving too much away, I'll hand over to Charlene, founder of A Vibe Called Tech and part of um, the resident community at Somerset House, who will be moderating this conversation with DeForest Brown Jr. and Daniel Brathwaite-Shirley. Hello, um, I'm Charlene Prempe, as Leonara said. I am founder of Vibe Tech, which initially began as an initiative looking at the effects of technology on the black community in the UK. It's uh, evolved then to also um, be a creative agency that focuses specifically on black narratives and black creativity. Um, I also write about black creatives for um, Financial Times, how to spend it. Um, largely on businesses, um, but I'm also a contributing editor, so I, I write about all sorts of other things. Um, so that's me. Um, I'd like to pass over to DeForest Brown Jr. to tell you what he's about. Hi, yeah. I'm DeForest Brown Jr., an ex-American theorist, journalist, and curator. Um, I also produce digital audio and extended media as speaker music. Um, I'm also a representative of the Make Techno Black Again campaign, as you see in the hats, um, which is a kind of campaign hoping to pull together the history of Detroit Techno and its financialization, in a sense, and kind of like to pull together this history, but also to uh, like 50% of the proceeds from the hats are actually sent to uh, Teen Hype, a youth education program in Detroit, focusing on arts and music in hopes of keeping that spirit and energy alive. Um, and later on in the fall, I'll be releasing my first book, Assembling a Black Counterculture, which collates all of this history into one tome of a book. Brilliant. And Danielle. 
Hi, um, I'm a, I would, I guess, describe myself as a black trans archival activist. So essentially what that means is that I create black trans archives that are interactive and that we respond based on the choices you make within them and the identity that you have. Um, the kind of main purpose of my work is to make these archives accessible, centering black trans people. Um, and so there's like no recreation of trauma in the archives. It's not about education. It's not about teaching someone. It's not about stepping in someone's shoes. It's about centering black trans people as black trans people in the way that they want to be centered and focusing on what we think is important to archive rather than what the larger scale of the population thinks is important to archive. Um, and these usually take the, the forms of uh, online internet um, sites. But, um, they're built ground up for black trans people from the code to the to all the characters, all the music, all the choices within the work. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Danielle. Um, all right, so given that this session is about that kind of intersection between black joy and the technological space, I want to kind of be all academic about it and start with like thinking about what black joy is, right? Like, what are we actually talking about here? Like, what comes to mind or how do you employ black joy in your practice? Let's start there. What is black joy to you? Actually, I saw in an interview, I believe it was AQMB that Danielle did a while back, where you kind of referred to blackness as a bit of a jouissance experience. And jouissance is one of my favorite words in the like lexicon of words of the world because it kind of encompasses this idea of conflicting pain and pleasure that point at which pain becomes pleasure and pleasure becomes pain and i don't want to um i don't want to say that i'm a bit of a skeptic of joy as i try to be a joyful person but i've been finding it quite hard over the last year to um to find much joy other than in again, pulling together a lot of this history, talking with my family, um, digging through my family history um, and writing this book. I think this idea of archive building is a way to pull a lot of joy and kind of imagine a joyful time while dealing with very, um, to be polite, I'll say adverse circumstances, which come, you know, come along with settler colonial technological capitalism under which we're living. This is not our natural state as Africans. And this is, um, and I can't really see much joy in the modern world as it's been conceived, but this is something I'm constantly trying to acclimate to, but it's, yeah, I'm constantly kind of struggling with this particular form um, and constantly working with others to find this joy and finding joy within that act of working with others and having conversations like this. Yeah, um, for me, when I think about Black Trans Joy, I think about, the first thing I think about is like a holding. It's like someone can look at you and hold everything that you are before saying a word to you. Um, and so like an instance of that is like a head nod holds, like when two black people walk, walk past you on the street, the head nod holds so much like joy for me when I you know, when you get one especially if I'm in a in a place where I'm not seeing many black people and then I get a head nod I'm like there's this like feeling of like I've just been acknowledged some something about my existence and the way I'm living has been acknowledged nothing has to have been said they don't know me from Adam but the thing is like th that moment brings a moment of 
of joy or like uh, of being seen. And for me, like black joy comes when someone sees you um, in a way that you can't really see yourself. Um, and I have this phrase that sometimes, like sometimes the people around you see you before you even see yourself. Um, and for me, that really holds true because when you're with a group of black people, um, they can they can hold you without having to um, like remind you of things that you're going through or things that you've been through because you both are there for the same reason or like you both have done certain things for a very similar reason. And so when I think about that joy, it's more about this kind of, this like moment of like, we, we can hold anything that we've been through. Nothing you say to me is gonna be surprising, um, but that won't just become you. That's like, that's what I think when I think about black joy. I think it's interesting that both of you in different ways have spoken about black joy in, in how it relates to community effectively whether yeah. that's like a community of experience, right, or um, connecting to your community to create joy, um, it's a sense, I love what you're saying about space. It's a, it's a sense of space um, and, a, and a joyful space. It's not like an individual experience. Um, and it's making me think, like, I think I've become slightly obsessed with this, um, this whole thing, like about a month ago. Maybe you guys, you, um, I think especially DeForest might know about already, about um, Soul City there was this attempt to create a black city <laughs> like, yeah. an, like, a, like an all black city um with the i suppose the idea being that you'd be able to that there'd be like economic prosperity there but also there'd be a sense of like cultural understanding and safety right by like there being like an all black space mm. and that like back in that time obviously very much about like this kind of physical space um, for like for black people, is there? Do you think there's a need for like a similar? Do you think there's a need for like digital spaces of joy for black people in that same way, where it's where it's like I, I like on your website, Danielle, where it says this might not be for you. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I laughed, but I but it did kind of make it clear that this is this is for this is for me and mine right mm -hmm. and like is that something that's needed now yeah i like i am really like a strong advocate for like having spaces that are built ground up for black people like a hundred percent um and it's because so i have this i like for me i have this thought that like if the foundation doesn't support you from the code then nothing nothing you put on top will will be able to last um, and so for me, like having like a black trans portion of the internet space is actually taken up by black trans people making from black trans code, black trans experience writing that code all the way up to whatever it is, if it's a network, if it's a video, whatever. Um, for me, it's so important to take that space on the internet. Because I remember when I was younger, I used to search for stuff all the time. Um, and it was oh, impossible. It was impossible, you know, like things would come up, but it were mainly like references, pictures on other websites. And when I think about like the terms of agreement that Facebook have or Instagram have, um, in the end, it will cause erasure to the people that we, we care about because those terms of engagement, those terms of agreement are written by white men uh, in a boardroom, um, very much so just to make money. It's not really about our communities, even if we do foster those communities on there. And so for me, black people taking up that internet space, just like, just from one, just the aesthetic of that, 
And then, then the community that can be built from that, the things that actually come from an all black space online is, is very, for me very similar to something that comes from an all black space in person. Um, and so I really feel like we need to get that. Like I'm tired of us having to use you know, Facebook to create an, a black group that's private. Because for me, when I know when the, when the archiving police come, They'll say Facebook was a great platform for all these white people. It was fantastic. We did all these things, but those black private groups will be erased from existence. Um, and so for me, it's also a, a, this idea of storing and remembering. And if the code base, if the foundation isn't written and designed by black people for black people, there's some erasure going to come in when the website eventually is taken down or um, moved somewhere else. Yeah, this is something I've actually lived in real life in a lot of ways is, I guess, this idea, like I come from a very black place. I didn't, and I, I often have to qualify for people. I didn't meet a white person or white people in mass until I was like 20, because it's, um, believe it or not, America is a very segregated place, especially where I'm from. I was <laughs> looking into uh, Soul it. City. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's in North Carolina. And it's interesting. Like, I didn't even, um, I should look more into Soul City. But I'm from Alabama, which is a few states down. And we're within a region called the Black Belt, which is, you know, it's kind of indicative. It was named by Booker T. Washington as a place where Black people who were former slave class outnumbered white people, something crazy like 10 to 1. Um, and this is, yeah, and this is literally a byproduct of settler colonials, like, and the transatlantic uh, slave trade. This is literally, you know, if you want, want to say it this way, the white man did it to themselves. Um, and the civil war that happened here was over. And the civil war that happened back in the uh, 1800s was a byproduct of that, uh, I guess, that skewed numbering because the U.S. government was like, you have to count these slaves as people to basically regulate your, the seats in the House and the seats in the Congress um, and to regulate how income and political power shared across the country. Um, and so the freeing of African-American slaves was kind of a interesting economic and political handicap to the South that left a lot of open opportunities for Black Americans to start doing this work that, you know, we're talking about now of building infrastructure. I'm often grabbing um, this book, uh, Black Reconstruction, 1860 to 1880, um, as a kind of model, mostly for any kind of Black um, black infrastructural development. Because, I mean, after 1860, you basically have a bunch of Black people who are theoretically mute. We couldn't, we weren't allowed to speak our language, our original language or the language of English. We weren't allowed to read. So there's a thing where you're kind of left out in the open in a bankrupted and destroyed part of the country, um, which was destroyed by war, and kind of left at our wits to, to build. Um, it's something that my great-grandfather did when he was freed in 1930, um, was he took the money that he managed to swindle out of a slave owner, and he used that to buy land and to buy materials for a house that he built with his hands, and him and his, like, nine kids all inhabited this house, you know, and developed infrastructure in a family. Um, and yeah, it's when I said earlier that I gain a lot of joy from archives and I, I definitely see a lot of what you mean, Danielle, about like just pulling these things together in this, this space and, and the idea of the head nod and stuff. It's um, 
I mean, for example, I was reading a book about Sun Ra, like the free jazz musician. Um, I was reading his biography and realized that I was literally reading about my neighborhood and, you know, called up my family and found out that my grandfather owns the house of the music instructor that taught Sun Ra how to play the trumpet. Um, and he's buried in the same graveyard as my great grandfather. And these sort of connections, these even leading up to me, like many years later, playing, having played the trumpet my whole life and making this sort of Afrofuturist, um, matrix-breaking music, like it, it all kind of has a, a root. Um, and I haven't been back to Alabama. Well, I went back to Alabama just before the pandemic, but I haven't lived there in about eight years. But it's, I've been thinking a lot about that sense of rootedness and the sense of how to take these roots and I don't want to say abstract them for uh, more flexible usage, especially in digital spaces, but yeah, maybe I will just say that. Do you think um, we currently have a root in digital spaces? Like, do you think the root's been planted? I'm on the fence, admittedly, because it's a thing where, I mean, there's obviously the stuff like Black Twitter, where, or like, um, where Black Twitter is constantly inventing new things, like Vine, the, the old um, app was kind of an invention from Black Twitter of people taking videos and like, or actually I think the retweet also was something that Black people had like invented by sharing, screen capping and sharing people's tweets and then Twitter like integrated it in. So like in real life, there's a lot of, or I would say corporeal life, there's a lot of, um, of these instances of Blackness and Black spaces existing within the code of the of the infrastructure that we call white hegemonic infrastructure but maybe not necessarily a sectioned off space so i was gonna say i think what you've mentioned i didn't know that about black twitter about the um retweets um yeah and all of that being kind of taken taken from blackness but it in many ways right it speaks to a lot of the work you do around like make techno black again because effectively, they've taken something that's been created out of black culture, found like an economic benefit mm -hmm. from it, um, and not compensated an entire community, which makes you kind of question whether or not, I suppose, whether or not technology is repeating a lot of the old or ingrained um, issues that exist in just kind of like our wider creative culture. I mean, it's a really interesting thing. Like I oftentimes start with the transatlantic slave trade in my own research, mostly to kind of put a cap at the beginning of what we call like modernity um, or this period after Europeans enlightened themselves and began to force other people to be as enlightened or brutalized by them. Um, so it's one of those things where I often question if the internet can exist in a logic outside of, we'll say, I won't even say white logic, I'll say empirical knowledge. Um, so like the knowledge, the long standing knowledge, philosophical knowledge of the empire. Um, and I'm constantly trying to find ways to flip that logic. And I guess maybe in this sense, I should ask Danielle, maybe how you've gone about doing this in digital spaces, because I've kind of, a, um, I tend to use stealth sonic warfare as a means of doing it, where like, you know, I try to show up in your algorithm feed and maybe like while you're swiping on Twitter, suddenly you'll get like blasted with like, you know, like an article or blasted with some sound that will like, you know, kind of wake you up. But that's the best I've been able to come up with. It's like laying these like landmines. The, the way I look at the internet is like, there's loads of lands of, of things that are made and it's, it's constantly spreading. Um, and 
most of the lands that I use on a day-to-day -day basis aren't directly centering those that I, I'm even searching for on like YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, all these things. Um, and so my feed usually represents the people that I want to see, but the, the products that I'm using don't. Um, for me, the way that I want, because I don't really want to subvert that, I think the people that I'm watching are doing that. They're doing a great job at that. They're doing, like, they're the ones who are, are very popular on those sites and it's great for them to have that. But for me, I want to create something that when you go on it, there's nothing but that. Um, and that's what I think the, the, the difference is in these things is that the internet is such a porous place that you can get from the right side to the left side, if, if they have sides, um, in a matter of seconds without even knowing you've done that. You know, one link can take you very far away from what you were originally at. And something about the sites I want to build is that no matter what you're clicking on, no matter where you go, you stay within it. And so you stay within the conversation, within the ideas, within the uh, representations presented there. So you won't get any other feed. It's not really a distraction, but it's just more of like making sure that you can't, um, your focus cannot be decentered in any of those moments. It's always centered on a particular group of people. And that's kind of what I feel can like take some space in a way. Like I obviously want to do better things. But um, for me, that's like something that I'm excited when I see something, a website, like an entire website with a whole domain that's a domain that's taken up, that someone has bought that domain. And so now that domain is owned. So if you search black, that domain might come up because the black is in the title of that domain. Um, and so if you search, um, so now if you search black trans archive, my archive comes up. And so I'm like, okay, that's really great because that means some space of those words, something I was searching a while ago, this will come up. And so this will be able to represent something that isn't currently represented online. So I kind of see it as like trying to, and obviously I, I can't do this on my own. I want everyone to do it, but trying to like take up those spaces so that when you're searching for things, you don't get the usual websites. Instead, you get something that's actually centering and focusing around the, the community you want. Um, and something you said about, um, you know, make techno black again. It's like, this is a repeated thing. Like something is good, then mainstream sees it, you know, we all know it. It gets taken, it's gone. Like the, the language used, everything, everything. Even, um, and it made me think that um, from, I'm a nerd, so I'm obviously gonna throw in a video game reference here. But the person who invented the cartridge was called Jerry Lawson, which is the black guy. Um, and he was a, I think he was one of the only black people in, what's that, Silicon Alley, yeah. Um, and yeah, so he invented the cartridge, but he was, and he invented the first cartridge console as well. Um, but he was lost to time, essentially erased. But this technology was used and not, not given any money for to then kickstart the gaming generation, essentially. Um, and so like, to me, like this is such a common thing that um, instead of, this is why I'm really like very much happy to distance away from these platforms because no matter what you do on these platforms, if you create something new, the corporation can kind of find a way to integrate it in and kind of make it more palatable to everyone else so that everyone forgets the location it came from. But when you, if you had the location, if the location is actually the thing you're using, it's very hard to forget that because you're actually on the site of the location. Um, I don't know if I'm making too much sense, but... <laughs>
No, that's exactly it. Yes. No, I think I think you're making a lot of sense, but I think I think it also raises questions about about scope or about or about size, right? Yeah. So so when you like, I loved what you were saying about. Um, like having a website and taking over that whole website and that being a space that is then part of like a real kind of concrete part of the internet. And it's almost like this kind of grassroots thing you're talking about, like all these tiny kind of grassroots digital organizations mm. like coming together and being a bigger thing. But is there for like true liberation, right? And maybe for like a real space of joy, is there a need for like a black Facebook? So, so, so it's not about like a tiny, all of these tiny things, but it's about like blackness being the power. Okay, so th like this, I've got loads of things to say on this, but okay, I want to start with the first thing that came to mind when you said scope is like, yes, we need something like a black Facebook, but I don't think, um, for me, the, the wording of that is like a bit, because in, instead I think we need a mapping of the internet centering on blackness. And so for me, what a, uh, a kind of site that would do that is essentially something that grows, that incorporates every new black site added. And so it's almost like a, a, a web browser, but in, in fact that you could go on this, let's say it's called Black Book, and um, you could search like, okay, so I want to see um, black people that sell shoes, you know? So you type in shoe sellers and everything that come up will be a black owned business. And so I think it's more about like mapping where these small um, websites have popped up, because I'm sure there's millions, um, and actually giving people access to them. Because I think the thing that uh, the, the sites we use, and I'm on Google Chrome now, people are probably on Safari. Um, I mean, probably two of you are on Internet Explorer now. Um, but for me, when you Google, when you Google thing, things, who's paid the most comes up. You know, it's not always... Um, the site you want. It's, there's an algorithm that says, oh, this person has sent these many emails, so we'll put this bed advert in. Um, and for me, it's like ha having a way to circumvent that and having a way to like, to surround all the kind of black websites and black activity popping up online that is very hard to get to unless you know the community. Like I'm sure all of us know like a black website that's popped up by someone we know that's made it or someone that's told us about it. But um, I couldn't search for it. Like none of us could probably search for those things. And I think we need something that umbrellas those and says like um, its aim is just to build that, that landmass of black websites. Yeah, I mean, so much of techno does this thing where they say uh, it's music for those who know. And a lot of me writing this book has been me being the person who knows and kind of like, not even giving the, the the community secrets away in it, but stringing together the truths that are just like on the surface and helping to build this map that you're talking about. Because like, I mean, for one, Detroit was the seventh city of New York or seventh city of America that was built off of the gold rush that started Silicon Valley in the first place. Um, and actually it's funny, the, the state of Michigan actually, um, and the newspapers of Michigan around the 1860s had published a lot of, um, stories basically saying go to california grab some gold and bring it back to us so we can make the best city of all time um which was actually distracting away from all of the slave rebellions that were happening all across the country and this happens several times across american history where like 
you know, black people were literally like revolting in the streets and waging warfare. And then, you know, the newspapers are just like, oh, look at this cool thing over here. Um, Woodstock and like uh, the hippie movement was another one of those examples. In 1967, there were over 150 uh, riots across the country. At the same time, you had the Six Days War over in Palestine where America was funding the, uh, yeah, you guys know all about that because we're watching the results today. But um, when you're talking about the space, I, I was looking around and I can't find the book, but there's a map of the empirical internet in this giant book called The Stack from Benjamin Braddon, where he literally maps for everyone like what the internet is and like how it's structured in layers. Um, and again, something I try to do with my practice is to sort of wiggle into these spaces and, um, and to start kind of like blowing up parts like the Death Star or something. Um, another example is this, that's been really helpful to me is this book from Keller Eastman called Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space. And again, it's just taking these words from the empire and like flipping them on their heads. Because the thing is what you're saying, Daniel, like these spaces are, they, they are physically there, these like, um, in fact, it's actually, there's a term for this called black data. It's, it's data that just is with infinite depth and cannot be perceptible by this empirical um, digital knowledge or surveillance or, or, or verification what, what, or whatever. Um, and yeah, I guess what I'm saying is like there, there are spaces available, like blind spots available that may only be visible to us. And I think, again, like the retweet is another one of those like kind of examples of what you're saying about the cartridge. I, I think also what's nice about what you're both saying or you know, maybe this, maybe, okay, I'll ask you a question about whether or not this is what you're saying, actually, rather than um, stating it, is about how these, like, peripheral experiences of being black are what effectively, like, necessitates these, um, the creation of these, jo- like, these, these moments of joy or um, these technologies, right? It's, it's because we're not part of this wider system like you said, DeForest, that we see these gaps. Um, and I, I wonder whether or not, I can't work out if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> like, like, that's the conflict I was bringing up earlier. Because no, And it's actually, it's really brilliant that you just drew this connection between innovating technology and joy, because that's something I'm trying to get across in the book. And it's not really to center on American, African-American experiences, but it's just, there's a, there's a straight line of African-Americans, like a literal, like, it's kind of fucked up, actually, just across, like, a, a 200 years, you can just see these Black people putting sh- stuff together after the Civil War, just going, like, okay, how does this work? How does that work? And you see these things happening in other places, like in Kingston, Jamaica, with the invention of dub. Um, you see this with Kaduro music over in, you know, Angola. And it, it, there's there's this tinkering that's happening where we're just like, you know, what is this empire, this enlightened thing we've been put inside of? And the and perhaps the joy comes from the success of linking two pieces of machine together and getting a spark. For me, when I think of like, there's a lot of things that like black people can just make stuff out of nothing. And like, I feel like it's like a a skill that lives in the body. Like I'm someone who believes that like, there's, there's information that lives in the body. Um, and I feel like I've seen so many black people just make stuff from nothing. 
And then that's, then suddenly that's the thing that everyone needs. That's the thing that we need, you know, that's the thing we need to hear. And it, it, when it's from like a dub, it's like, that was the communicating something as well. That not just, it's not just like the sound. And that's what I think gets taken out of sometimes when um, these things get like, um, you, uh, like taken and put into other kind of cultures and other kind of groups as entertainment. It's like the original point of that was like, I want to communicate something and I, I don't want to say it to one person. I need to say it to a lot of people because I feel like a lot of these people get it, you know? And if someone had said that to me, I'd feel, I'd feel something. And it's that kind of like want to communicate an experience and then being like, how the hell do I do that? Well, I'm just gonna try this thing um, and I'll see if it works. And then all my friends are like, well, I'll try this thing with a larger group of people. And I feel like so many, so many, so many like black genres, so many black books, movies, things come out of this want to just show a wider community uh, of each other. They, they find things to put together and then it like they, somehow just like push it so that it just makes sense like it, and it's and it's so weird because often it doesn't make sense until someone just clicks it and then it com makes complete sense and i feel like there's this whole history of communication or blackness that is about clicking and then sharing and clicking and sharing i really really like this idea that it's it's part of who we are and it's like it's generational and it's ingrained right because there's a lot of conversation now around black joy is about like living a joyful life like in this moment and a lot of discussions about the things that are passed through black culture or through like are ingrained in us are often about sadness so, like kind of that whole theory of like africana melancholia that like the collective experience of blackness is is sad so we're all just inherently sad <laughs> um but i i like this kind of parallel narrative of like we're also, because um, they're not like they're not mutually exclusive. That we're also innovators by our kind of very nature, and that's built into the, to who we are. Because it, it allows for like a future of lots of joy. Because the idea of that clicking and communicating is how joy is spread. I think yes, we have like we have sadness in our our bodies, but I think there's there's like a lot. I think there's a lot of things within our within our bodies that we we don't get to think about. And there's so much that's actually archived over years and years and years that uh, allow us to and um, want to form this community bond today. Um, like there's a reason like the head nod like shakes you down to the core in a good way when it happens. You know, there's a reason why um, like movement in a certain way, just seeing that kind of movement fills, fills you with something and you do it instinctively. Um, and I feel like, and I'm gonna say ancestors, and I don't mean ancestors as some like godly figure. I just mean black people before us. Um, um, and there's nothing wrong with godifying ancestors, but that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying, <laughs> black people before us. I feel like there's so much that's passed on, um, and it's so it's so it's so deep within our bones that we don't even think about how much of it we're doing. Um, and so for me, yes, there is sadness, but I think the sadness is the thing that gets talked about often because it's the thing we get to see. Um, it's the thing that people consume. It's the thing that people talk about in reference to black people rather than the joy. You know, you never get a news saying, did you know techno was black? You never get a news saying that. You'll get news saying everything we know that the news is gonna say. 
And so I think there's this like idea that like blackness equals sadness. Blackness has so much sadness in it, um, which is true. But at the same time, there's there's plentiful amounts of joy that is within um, our, our our bodies, our families, our our histories, the way we move. Um, but I just don't, I don't, I just think that conversation is like less had. I just think we, we don't, like this is the first conversation I've ever had about black joy. So that already says something. I've done like a load of panels, but this is the first one I've ever had where the questions are all centered around black joy. And, and actually where the questions are centered around black joy with no reference to whiteness. That is, this is the first conversation I've had around that, which I really appreciate. Because um, usually when those conversations are had, it's usually, in uh, juxtaposition to um, the opposition of black joy. I referred earlier to the church and I'll, you probably noticed by now I refer back to home a lot. It's because that, when you say like black joy without whiteness, that's where I see it. When I go home to these places where the real joy is there where people aren't necessarily, well, they don't have to see this whiteness. They're not, they're, they're not even thinking about it. They're living their best life within the confines of like what is there. But again, I, these moments of joy, like for me, that's always come out of music and it's always come out in the church. I'm no longer religious properly speaking, but there's that moment where people catch the Holy Ghost. And this is again, that kind of filial uh, ancestral thing you've been pointing to, Danielle, where like, you know, I see my mom catch the Holy Ghost and just get up in church and start like, you know, moving around and dancing. And there's a line in the Bible where, you know, David danced so hard that he danced out of his clothes. He danced so hard for God that he like just lost everything. For me, it's like finding that outside of that environment. I feel like really strongly connected with you on that. Like to find those moments outside of that environment is rare for like, I feel that is very rare. And that's like a peak of joy because like, in the in the church, you know, my grandma, she's praising the Lord. Nothing else matters in those moments. It's just the Lord. It's just the words from the Bible. Um, and, and whatever happens in that room, it's because of joy. It doesn't matter if someone throws a table. It doesn't matter if someone throws a book. It doesn't matter. It's all joy. And I feel really strongly about that phrase um, or like the idea of like trying to recapture that and seeing if we can have that elsewhere um, that isn't just surrounding God and the Holy Spirit. And yeah, no, I, I really second this idea of removing ourselves from Protestantism and definitely removing ourselves from Catholicism and its brutal, horrific thousand year history um, to find something that is, I don't want to say secular because not that either, but, but something that is wholly black and, and, and joyful, yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Internets of Everything podcast. We invite you to learn more about our guests and check out our upcoming live sessions at billion.iam-internet.com forward slash IOE. And remember, you can support this series and our long-term mission by becoming a Billion Seconds Institute member today.